uh, by your singing. And uh, that'll be something we will continue to do. And Rachel will introduce old songs, new songs, everything in between. Uh, 90s hits to modern day hymns, whatever. Um, But anyways, great singing. Turn in your Bibles with me to the sixth psalm. The sixth psalm, and we will continue studying and beholding our Lord in the psalms. And I hope it can be beneficial uh, to your walk with Christ. That as you walk with Him, as you meditate on His truth, that um, you can look after each day, after each full day of work and play and school and parenting and homework and all these things and uh, know that God surely is, as we sang, God is good and God is good to us. Uh, The sermon title for this morning is A Night of Prayer and Tears. A Night of Prayer and Tears. And so... I hope you're at the sixth psalm, psalm number six. We will read God's word together. Follow along with me. Psalm number six. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Yahweh, how long? Turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast Love, For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol who will give you praise. I am wearying with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Thus reads the very words of our living God. Uh, Repentance is a lifelong endeavor for the Christian. Repentance is a lifelong endeavor for the Christian. One can never grow out of or grow past the need and the act of repentance. Uh, The penitent sinner is a godly saint. We must understand that there is always room for tears when it comes to repentance. There's always space in the house of God for penitent, sorrowful, tearful Sinners that cry out for mercy to a merciful, almighty God. 
Tears are not often the sole indicator of for repentance. Hebrews 12, 16 through 17 tells us that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Esau that older brother displayed a worldly sorrow that only led to more grief. While the opportunity for repentance was still afforded to him, he rejected it for a selfish, self-consumed, woe-is-me kind of worldly sorrow. However, true repentance is accompanied by her friend, Faith. These two essential foremost character traits that embody the Christian, only when these two friends are joined hand in hand, linked arm in arm, can the Christian truly receive the forgiveness and mercy of God, the prizes in which Christ has won. Um, The Puritan minister Thomas Watson comments, uh, the two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Faith and repentance preserve the spiritual life as heat and radical moisture do the natural life. Meaning that it is these two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance, that acts as the furnaces, so to speak, that drive the engine of the renewed born-again soul. But I want us to take a step further, if you will, in examining this first side of repentance. The act and doctrine of repentance embody a wide range of emotions, but is commonly most found with tears, with a godly sorrow. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Repentance is that comfort that accompanies any mourning over Sin. Uh, the psalm we are studying this morning continues that day and night cycle of the previous three psalms that we have seen. Here we find David on his bed, David on his resting place after a day's worth of battles, both physical and spiritual. Uh, psalm 6 is the first of a series of seven different penitential psalms. Uh, the others include Psalm 32. Psalm 38, Psalm 51, which many of you know, should, should know, is the response to his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 102, 130, and 143. The church father, Augustine, had oftentimes had these seven penitential psalms read to him at his bedside as he perused them and as he wept over his sin with tears. So we're here and we have the man of God, a man after God's own heart, overcome by his sin. David is in deep distress and in penitence calls out to God. But he does so on his bed, uh, now becoming a very wet bed of tears. So we have an evening prayer or a night prayer with tears. A night of prayer and tears. What 
we shall see is not only the distress of David, but also how David brings his cares and his troubles to God, but also the rejuvenating nature of prayer, a prayer of repentance, and how by committing his life, by committing his shortcomings to God, a clearer picture of God is developed, that God is the Redeemer. God is the great deliverer of distress. Thus, we can model our lives and our prayers after David's. We can learn to go to God, tears and all, and entrust our sin, our shame, our guilt, and our trouble to him. And be reminded and be restored once again to the Lord because of his great mercy. And so this psalm breaks down into two parts, and it's that, that change in emotion that divides our text this morning. Uh, first, in the first seven verses, verses one through seven, we shall see repentance, the first inclination. Repentance, the first inclination, verses one through seven. And then in the last three verses, verses eight through 10, we'll see deliverance, the next expectation. Deliverance, the next expectation. And so let's go back to the top. Psalm number six, verse one, to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemetneth, Psalm of David. The psalm opens with the superscript to the leading musical voices with the eight-stringed harp uh, according to the Shemetneth or the eight-stringed harp or lyre. This eight-stringed lyre is difficult to define as it only appears two other times in all of scripture in Psalm 12 and um, Another psalm that uh, deals with the deliverance of God, and it also appears in 1 Chronicles 15, where David is preparing to move the Ark of the Covenant from its uh, resting place in Shiloh to the city of David, Jerusalem. However, whatever the kind, this eight-stringed lyre, guitar, uh, this instrument may be, we, we can gather from this superscript is the fact that after David wrote this psalm, it was most likely intended to be a full song in its conception. That after all the events that has happened, David has intended this song to be sung. And this is something we'll come back to later. Now David opens with a plea to Yahweh to not adjudicate or not judge or prove David in his anger and displeasure or wrath. The focus of this opening line is upon these two terms, in your anger and in your wrath, as they are placed in the emphatic or the frontmost position, meaning they are mentioned first after David addresses Yahweh. So you have Yahweh and then you have in your anger and then in your wrath. This first term anger is literally derived from the term, uh, from the same term that means nostril or breath of the nostril. Same term found in Genesis 2, verse 7, where God makes all living things, including man, and he breathes life into their nostrils. However, in our case, it's used slightly differently in the context of hot anger, as if your nostrils flare up in anger. 
that steamy imagery of anger visibly, visibly flowing in and out of the nose of God, anthropomorphically speaking. Furthermore, in parallel fashion, David makes the same plea in the second half of verse one. Uh, do not discipline or do not chasten me in your wrath. Do not discipline me in your wrath. It's a similar picture of that hot rage or that heat as in uh, verse, the first half of the verse. The same use in parallelism. It's as if, contrary to the outside weather uh, we currently experience, David is feeling the heat and anger of God as a man would face the heat of the sun on an incredibly hot and humid day. I know that's really hard to picture right now because that's the farthest thing from your minds. But um, just imagine with me if you've been to a more humid climate on God's good earth. You can imagine what David is trying to convey here through his words. Uh, You feel the discomfort, uh, probably more intense than being in a hot and humid climate and feeling the need to shower after showering once already. That's the similar image that David is picturing here, but under the nostrils of God, so to speak. This is the formula in which we see in all seven penitential psalms. The writer opens with a cry to God, recognizing the position he is ultimately in before God and thus cries out to have mercy upon him before he goes into why he needs this mercy in the first place. There is a God first mentality here. Yahweh is the first person he addresses after the superscript and Yahweh is the only person on David's mind here. No other person is in view. This is the primary Uh, First and only position, first and only posture one can have before the Lord. Even for you and me on this side of the cross, though we have been washed, though we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, repentance understands that, yes, judicially, functionally, before the Lord, we are declared righteous, we are justified. But our sin still grieves the Holy Spirit. So we still need repentance. We recognize that when we sin, after being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're sinning not just against ourselves anymore, not not just against our brothers and sisters, but we're sinning against the blood of Christ. We're sinning against forgiveness. We're sinning against the grace and mercy of God. And therefore, our sin, if you are a Christian, your sin has never been so serious, nor so grave, has as it has been before. Therefore, to God and to God alone, must we come before and must we plea for grace, must we plea for mercy once more. Be like that tax collector and say, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. So David pleads to God to stay his hand. Look at verse two. Verse two continues this cry for mercy by literally David asking for mercy. Be gracious to me, O Lord, or be merciful to me. The English translations intermittently, uh, interchangeably, excuse me, use those terms. Uh, Previously, the two verbs of not rebuking and not disciplining is the ongoing action that David seeks to avoid. But now, now, David uses the imperative. He commands Yahweh to be merciful or to be gracious to him. Notice again the use of parallelism. 
David commands God to be merciful to him, be gracious to him, because his bones or his self, his body is troubled. Then he commands God to heal him because his soul is troubled. His soul is troubled and terrified or disturbed. This use of parallelism, saying similar things repeatedly in slightly different forms, covered the entire range of the person of David, from his soul to his bones or his body. David needs God. This is not an expression of the physical and the spiritual, the material and the immaterial, but rather uh, this is a mirism. Mirism, meaning by expressing his, mo- his emotions from one end of the spectrum uh, to the other end of the spectrum by saying from my bones to my soul. He's covering the entire range of who he is. And he recognizes that David needs God and God alone. There is no other person that can show him mercy. There is no other person that can heal him. And David recognizes that only God can do these things. Only God can cover this entire range of personhood for David. Look at the latter half of verse 3. After saying, my soul is greatly troubled, he shifts. And David turns to face Yahweh and no longer addresses Yahweh by way of his circumstances or his emotional condition, but he turns and he uses the plural, plural pronoun you. But you, Yahweh. As if to say, I am like this. My body is pining away. My soul is languishing. It's disturbed. It is terrified. It is trembling. What about you, God? What about you? You see me like this, but you, what about you? How long will you be distant? How long? How long will you seem to be standoffish? How long will you merely hear my prayers and not act? Uh, Remember from last week's Psalm, Psalm number five, we're not to mistake these kinds of commands and these kinds of questions as high-handed disrespect or high-handed rebellion because it's not. Our God can not only handle our complaints, but he, in a sense, welcomes them. He welcomes the challenge because he is God and we are not. God can handle your cries. God can handle your challenges. God can handle your doubts and your fears. He can handle all of these things and he can and he will answer in his due time. And so it's as if David's saying, what are you going to do, God? You know all these things about me. What are you going to do about this? Because I know that you can. The question then becomes, after asking all these questions, Can you handle God's response when it comes? Because rest assured, it will come. All of you who pray, I'm confident that every person in this room, children included, have prayed in one form or another. All of you who get on your knees and beg God to hear your prayer, and all of you who ask for physical, spiritual, emotional healing or deliverance, you ask in faith, and that is good. But are you prepared to respond in faith when the answer of God inevitably comes? When the doctor's diagnosis isn't what you expected it to be? When the college acceptance isn't the answer 
you accepted, expected to be, so on and so forth. Um, David was no stranger to this concept. David, uh, for what seems like the umpteenth time, the millionth time, you read it in the Psalms, it's all over the Psalms, is probably still on the run. Whether it is from his usurping son Absalom or another occasion, this king after God's own heart often finds himself in this state of being on the run. But here, David, his focus isn't so much on his circumstances and the occasion of his fleeing, but rather he goes a step more introspective, a step more personal. David recognizes that it is his sin that has placed him in this situation in the first place. If we were to follow the most logical explanation for the occasion of this psalm, David is probably, most likely, not saying for sure, still on the run from Absalom. Because God promised strife and sword will not depart from his house all of his days. Why was this? Because David, during the times in which kings went to war, he stayed home. And because he stayed home, he was given over to temptation. He murdered a man, and then he stole his wife. Absalom, his son, was merely the instrument of God's discipline upon David's wretched sin. And I'm pretty sure in writing this in the other penitential psalms like 32, 38, and especially 51, David understood the ramifications of his sin. And repentance to his God was his only concern. David recognizes his condition before God. Look at verse 4. Turn, Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Here he asks God to return and to rescue his soul. He understands that ultimately it is his soul that is in jeopardy here. David understood that repentance on behalf of his soul takes place best in the form of prayer. David continues to pray, and he asks for his uh, God-saving arm. David reminds himself as he reminds God that it is only God's steadfast love, his loyal love, his loving kindness, some of your translations will say, or his chesed that can save him or save anyone for that matter. David moves again to call upon God to be God. He challenges God. In a challenge he knows God can handle. He points out the fact that in death, for in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? So in the fact that in death, in hell, in the pit, in Sheol, in the abyss, whatever scripture says, describes hell as, there is no praise of Yahweh. There's no one in hell that recognizes Yahweh for who Yahweh is and thus praises him. And so let this further understand, uh, further our understanding of, of death, of hell. All those who go to hell, godless, Christless, men and women will go raising their fists as they have all their life. They'll go raising their fists instead of raising their hands in praise. There is no worship in hell. There's only weeping and cursing God. And gnashing of teeth against him. David fully understood this. David fully understood the grave. And he challenges God. And he says, since all these things concerning hell is true, 
Why won't you save me? Because I wish to return as you return to praise you. Here is the the beauty of the repenting soul. That there is an overwhelming desire to repent because there is an overwhelming desire to worship. Uh, Repenters are in fact worshipers. Repentance can only happen because there is a strong, overwhelming desire to worship God and worship Him rightly. When we sin, when we are in sin, we sense how, how flawed, how marred, how lacking, how shortcoming our worship can be. When asked to sing, we feel the weight of our sin and the disingenuousness of our singing. We feel like hypocrites. And it is only through repentance can we see this burden of sin lifted off our back and to be like Christian in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We see our burden roll away, far away, out of our sights and out of our minds. So I encourage you to grasp onto these godly challenges. Work them into your prayer life. Uh, Bank your challenges and your petitions upon the character of God. And this requires you to know this God. This requires you to know what God is like and what his will is. His will for you is holiness, godliness, that you would produce the fruit of righteousness of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to depend upon him as a child would depend upon a father. So therefore, you can model your prayers and your repentance in this manner. When you repent along with a robust knowledge of God, you can be sure that mercy and grace can never be too far off. We come upon this final section of our first point, verses six and seven. And here I wish to devote some time considering sorrow, considering the the place for tears and sorrow for the Christian. We all know of the two men, Judas Iscariot and his counterpart, Simon Peter. These two men were numbered among the 12 and they were both disciples of Christ. They both saw and partook in the extraordinary ministry of Christ and were trained by our Lord themselves, himself, excuse me. And yet when it came to Christ's darkest hour, both ran away. We know this story. Uh, one sold his master for 30 pieces of silver and the other denied him so many times that he pronounced a curse upon himself to see if others would find him lying and if he was, uh, let him be a curse, let him die. Judas would return to the priests and the scribes and he would renounce the traitorous 30 pieces of silver as Luke would indicate in Acts. He would then hang himself and have his bowels turned inside out. But the other, Peter, would eventually sit with Christ. He would repent three times and be restored. And my point is both men would undoubtedly be in tears when they felt the weight of their sin in betraying Christ. But what was the difference here? Simply put, one loved Christ and the other hated him. Peter loved Jesus. So coming back to our text now, it is obvious David loves his God. David says he is weary. He is 
tired with his sighing, with his growing, with his turmoil. And every night on his bed, on his pillow, his sheets are wet with tears. The literal image David paints here is his bed or his couch would be drenched so much with his tears that it would dissolve as any water-soluble material would dissolve. David explains that his eyes have wasted away or grown old and useless. And that, growing, that wasting away, that term is only found here in the, in the next penitential psalm. Only it is in this context of wasting away or growing old does David finally, seven verses later, mention his adversaries. Not until this seventh verse does David make mention of his surrounding condition. It is all introspective. As we shall see, it will continue to be introspective. But at this point, I do not want you to miss the, the place and the purpose of tearful, sorrowful, grieving repentance. As the Apostle Paul will teach later, a worldly sorrow will remain sorrow, but godly sorrow will become repentance and faith and subsequent restoration. As Watson puts it, worldly tears fall onto the earth, but godly tears are kept in a bottle. There is more than enough room in God's gracious dealings with man for tears, for weeping and self-hatred over one's sin. And there's more than enough room because there, is, there must be this sad resentment. There must be a weeping over one's sin. Either sin must drown or the soul must burn. Either you mourn over your sin and find grace on the cross or you mourn over yourself and find nothing except that legalistic endeavor of earning and proving your own self-righteousness. Proving your self-piety. But in truth, merely wallowing in your self-pity. And all this is driven, must be driven by a love for God. That the love of God controls us and compels us. And so repentance is undergirded with the love of God. So let repentance forever and always be our first inclination. If tomorrow we are to die, let us repent today. Let us repent and find the all-satisfying favor and comfort of knowing the mercies of God. Let us repent and turn and behold the great majestic beauty of Christ and his cross and his subsequent resurrection. Let us repent and claim the benefits of the new birth, of reconciled fellowship, of a new nature, a new creation in Christ. And let us repent and grasp hold of the, the hope and the glory of resurrections for ourselves. If you have not repented, repented of your sin, of your sinful lifestyle, if you never saw the need for repentance, if you always thought and now do think that because you are a good Christian, you grew up going to the church maybe. You know your Bible stories. You attended your Sunday school children's classes. That, that makes you right with God. But I want to inform you how sorely mistaken you are. Repent. Repent and be saved. Christ proclaimed when he began his ministry. 
Repent and know the Lord. Repent today and live. Let repentance always be your first inclination when confronted by your sin and God's holiness. Get to verse 8. And here, David finally looks up. And this brings us to our second point, our latter half. Deliverance, the next expectation. David finally looks up. And he first calls upon his enemies, God's enemies, and he asks that they be removed from his vision. And look at his reasoning. It isn't because he figured out how to best deal with his sin. He did not figure out how to best get right with God. He did not consult a self-help guru and ask for the latest and greatest in terms of self-help books. No. David finally looks up and he pushes past and he removes these people, his enemies from his vision because David knows that Yahweh has heard him and Yahweh will respond to him. Twice David uses the simple term for heard. Yahweh heard. Yahweh has heard. Yahweh hears. Yahweh hears my weeping voice. Yahweh hears my supplications and Yahweh answers and responds or takes in, receives my prayer. Three times in quick succession, David uses Yahweh's name. Three times David displays his confidence in his God. And this is the expectation for every saint, every man or woman of faith. When you know the Lord, when Yahweh is your God and you love him, you can call upon him with absolute confidence that he will hear and then he will deliver. Look at David's confidence. There's no swearing. There's no, if you answer me, God, I will do this or I will do that. Simply, David says, the Lord receives or the Lord accepts my prayer. He keeps my tears in his bottle and he will keep my prayers on his heart and in his mind. Let this be the outcome of our weeping. That the time of weeping is always short. The time for crying upon God, sitting in the sackcloth, Finding our place in the garbage heap is always short because God is the lifter of our heads. Look how David recounts his past deliverances. God has heard. God has heard before and he will hear again. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Therefore, David knows his confidence is grounded. His peace is sure. The tears dry and joy comes again. And so let your heart take this same kind of courage. Go to God, repent and pray. Repent and lament over your sin. Go to God and confess all of your iniquity, all of your sin. Do it quickly, do it with haste and do it purely before the Lord. But do it and then embrace mercy. Repent and then turn to Christ. Let this be the pattern of your prayers. That is, hopefully it can be the pattern of your lives. When you sin, you go to God and repent. You weep and mourn over your sin. But as Jesus promised, then you are comforted. Then you take comfort. 
Jesus promises it and he fulfills his promise upon the cross. Mourn over your sin and then behold the cross. Behold that rugged cross where the dearest and best gave up his life for sin. And when you do sin again, remember who are you sinning against, but then return to the cross once more. Behold the cross and then observe the grave. Observe that there is an empty grave. That the final curse of sin, the sting of death has been removed because of that grave. That ungodly sepulcher is empty. The grave is empty as sin's hold on God's faithful is no more. Go to these truths. Go to these scenes again and again when you sin. And find your repentance rooted and grounded there. Then embrace the mercy of God. Be restored back to God. Learn and relearn like David has here that Yahweh, it is Yahweh who has heard your voice. He has heard your petitions and your supplications. It is he who accepts or gladly receives, takes in your prayers. He does not deny them. He does not reject your prayers. He receives and he affirms your prayers and your faith. David concludes in verse 10 with triumph. David has been delivered. None of this speaks to the situation of his deliverance from his present circumstances, but look at David's confidence. He knows that soon, the future tense is used here. That soon his enemies will be ashamed and they will be very disappointed. They will be disappointed. They will be ashamed in what they've been mocking. They will turn away. They shall leave him, be ashamed because ultimately they were wrong. And David's God was right. David's God has heard. They were wrong about David's God. David's God does deliver. And therefore, they will no longer be able to make the same claims they once have before. I just want to put forth to you one last time that David's enemies were never the center or the focus of the picture here. David knew that this, they were a byproduct of his own sin. And so therefore, he must go straight to the source and petition and plea that the God of all righteousness would forgive and restore him back to the previous relationship he once had. The enemies were just the circumstances. And I can say the same thing for some of you. Some of you find yourself in trouble, find yourself distant to God, not as close to God as he once were. But I can assure you that your present circumstances, what you're going through is a byproduct of this relationship that you need to seek to mend. That you need to go back to God and understand that he is a very near and dear God who receives you. And so make it your business to be about the business of repenting. The preacher says in the book of Ecclesiastes that man is born as sparks fly upwards. But as long as these sparks are Flying up, may it be flying in the spirit and the act of repentance. 
Let us go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we know that on our own devices, on our own strength, this walk that you've called us to walk, this race you've called us to run, uh, we would be in shambles over and over again. And we have certainly seen that to be true in our lives. But Lord, you promise us that if we go to you, if we entrust ourselves to you, as we ask you and challenge you to be the God of your word, to be the God of your promises, of your covenants, Lord, that we can find restoration because you are the first mover, that you took initiative and Christ came down to take the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and ultimately to bear the weight of our sin. And so, Lord, let us turn away from the mud pies. Let us cling back and return to you to be cleansed. Let us find confidence knowing that in so doing, uh, you surely do welcome us as the prodigal son was welcomed by his father. So Lord, uh, may repentance be never far off in our lives. And help us to do so in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.